Well, just a quick intro in case uh, you weren't here in April when I got to teach. I moved here to the Northwest 16 years ago from the Midwest originally, which is why I am a Nebraska fan. I do have a soft spot in my heart for the Huskies, and I have been completely won over to Seattle Seahawks fandom, uh, partly thanks to my two sons who are crazy about the Hawks. I've been married for 18 years, and I have four kids. My oldest daughter is not here because she did play a house show in our house last night. We had about 75 people in our home for a concert, and she was raising money for a trip she's going to go on. So that was a great party. So to be honest, we let her sleep in. Um, so I want to ask you a question for you to just ponder as we get going here. What were some of the defining characteristics of the family that you grew up in? What were some of the defining characteristics of the family you grew up in? What was your family known for? Maybe there were some internal affirmations that helped identify some of these defining characteristics. Something like, you know, we're the Johnsons and Johnsons never quit. Or maybe, maybe something like, you know, we're the Joneses and Joneses always work hard. Or maybe there were some external affirmations that helped identify these character qualities in your family. Like, wow, your family is so generous. Or your family is so hospitable. As I thought about this question for my own family that I grew up in, I thought of a few paradoxical attributes. They're not really character qualities, but they're certainly things that were true of our family, and we were definitely known for these things. Number one, we drove beater cars. And number two, we love to go on road trips. So that's a bit of a problem. And I remember in the late 70s being a young kid and uh, driving in our Datsun B210 two-door hashback uh, with a rabbit cage strapped to the top where we kept our luggage. That was the luggage rack. It was a rabbit cage. And some of the churches maybe you've been a part of in the past, you would you know, lay hands on people and pray for them, and hopefully you're doing that now too. That's awesome. Well, the churches I grew up in, we would have people come over to our house and lay hands on our car and pray for the car before we would head off on the road trip. And then in high school, we had a Ford Fiesta that you needed a pair of pliers to roll down the window with, and you needed a screwdriver to get out of the driver's side door. <laughs> so we, we had these you know, two realities, and, and I've actually, uh, much to my wife's chagrin, I've kind of kept both of those up. Um, we love road trips. We've had a ton of fun and, and traveled most of the western part of the U.S. together. And the last four cars that I have owned, I've been the final owner. <laughs> so today, today we're, we're going to talk about a few defining characteristics of God's family. We're going to talk about three things that followers of Jesus should be known for. We're going to talk about three things that should mark the lives of Christians. So I want you to think about another question before we dive into it. First of all, think about the church at large, the universal church, and think, what is the church known for? What are some of the defining characteristics of the church at large? 
And I was fortunate enough to grow up in a fairly healthy church environment, not perfect, but most of the influence I had was, was pretty good. And so some of the defining characteristics for me of like the church at large are you know, pretty positive, but, but there were some negative things in there too. I know that's not super normal. And so I know that a lot of you have maybe even been hurt by the church and you, you've got some, some wounds and some pain. And I'll be the first to say, I know the church is not perfect and I know that grieves the heart of God. God's heart for his people is not that they would be known for causing pain and causing trouble and being a thorn in people's sides. So then bring it in a little closer and think about Doxa Church. What is Doxa Church known for? Or as Donald pointed out, you're not really that old, a few months old in terms of the identity that you have as a church family. What does Doxa Church want to be known for? Maybe bring it a little closer and think about your missional community. What is your missional community known for? What do you want your missional community to be known for? And then think about your own life. What are the defining characteristics of your life? What are you known for? Well, you've been in the book of 1 Peter. And just a quick summary of kind of the message of 1 Peter. 1 Peter is written to believers who are suffering persecution, uh, mainly because of the way that they're living and Peter continues to urge them over and over, keep living good lives, keep doing good works, keep doing good deeds, even though you're maligned, even though you're insulted, even though you're persecuted. Remember that Jesus suffered in his righteous life. Continue to do what's right and be a blessing to the people around you. I think a two-verse summary is 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, which means like this place isn't your home, we're all kind of temporary dwellers here. We're waiting for the new heavens and new earth. So we're part-timers here. We still want to be a blessing, but we don't want to get too sucked up into what's going on. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. So don't let the world impact you in terms of the way you live, a righteous life. But verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so don't completely remove yourselves. Be among the Gentiles and keep your conduct honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That's kind of been the overall message of First Peter. And now we're going to shift gears and talk about not how does the church interact with the world around Primarily, that's mainly what Peter's been talking about. Now we're going to talk about how does the church interact together as a family. So if you've got your Bible, look at 1 Peter chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 7 through 11. The end of all things is at hand, which is that same theme he's been talking about. We're sojourners, we're exiles. He talks multiple times about the return of Jesus. It could happen at any time, he's saying. The end of all things is at hand, therefore... Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Hey, we're part-timers here. Keep your head in the game. Don't get sucked into the world. Keep praying. Verse 8, above all, super important, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift... Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, 
The NIV says, whoever speaks, let him speak as, he, as if he speaks the very words of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. So in this passage, we find three key one another's. In the New Testament, there's over 30 one another's, 30 things that are instructed to the church. This is what your life together should look like. And now here in this book, we've got three right here in this short passage. This by far is the section that focuses most in 1 Peter on how the church is to live together. What are, what are to be the defining characteristics of God's family? And there's three, love one another, show hospitality to one another, and serve one another. Now before we get into the specifics of what that looks like and what that means for us practically, I want to point out that there's a, there's a way of thinking that we get caught in. And I, I think it's a lie. This thinking says that our actions give us our identity. That our actions provide our identity. That what we do results in who we are. But the Bible flips that around and says, no, no, no. Who you are results in what you do. That all of your actions, they don't actually, they don't provide your identity, they reveal your identity. So everything we do reveals what we believe to be true about ourselves at any given time. That's so clutch to understand these three one another's because if we think that our actions provide an identity, then we'll think that we have to love one another, show hospitality to one another, and serve one another so that we can prove something or so that we can acquire an identity. But the good news of 1 Peter and the good news of the gospel is you already have an identity. You are the family of God. Now, therefore, just live that identity out. Let your actions be consistent with who you are. 1 Peter chapter 1, just a couple quick verses that show this movement of family throughout the book. 1 Peter 1 and 2 says that we are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Verse 3 says we've been born again, which is familial language. You're born again. Verse 14 says we're obedient children. And verse 18 Uh, Verse 17, rather, says that the one who judges impartially is actually our father. So we have been adopted into God's family. We are family with Jesus. We are family with the Father. That's an amazing reality. And then out of that flows these one another's. There's another identity that we have that's found in 1 Peter, and that's the identity of a servant. We know that Jesus took on human flesh. He became a servant. He took the form of a bondservant so that he could lay down his life for us so that we could be set free from slavery to sin and now live as servants of God. Verses 18 and 19 of 1 Peter 1 say that we were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ. That ransom language means that Jesus walked into a slave market and laid down the price of his precious blood, his own life, to set free a host of slaves so they could be adopted into God's family and now live as his servants. So if you're here this morning and you have trusted in Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God lives in you and you are a part of God's family. That is who you are. 
and you are servants of King Jesus. We have a little liturgy that we do in our home. I'll ask my kids, who are you today? And they've been trained over the years. They know the answer. I'm a child of my Father God and a servant of King Jesus. Who are you today? I'm a child of my Father God and a servant of King Jesus. We need to be reminded constantly of our identity. And now out of that flow these three one another's. Number one, love one another. Peter says, above all, because he remembers the words of Jesus in John 13, 34, and 35, which say, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So Jesus holds up loving one another as the main characteristic of life in the family of God. And he says, other people are going to see the love that you have for one another and say, oh, that's a defining characteristic of God's people. They really love one another. Now, this is a theme for Peter in the book. He mentions it back in chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, where he says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. There's actually two different Greek words that Peter uses in, this, in these verses to talk about love. The New Testament was originally written in Greek. The, the word that's translated brotherly love there in the first verse is the Greek word Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. That's a love that's based on commonality. It's more like friendship love. The second word love there is the Greek word agape, which is willful, unconditional love. This is the love that God has for the world in John 3.16. This is the love that husbands are to have for wives in Ephesians 5. This is the love that we're to have for our enemies, according to Jesus. This is willful, unconditional love. And this is the love that Peter calls us to in 1 Peter 4.8. In fact, Eugene Peterson, in his translation of the Bible called The Message, he translates 1 Peter 4.8 this way. He says, love each other as if your life depended on it. Love each other as if your life depended, depended on it. Now Peter gives us a clue here as to the cost of this love. He says, love, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, I don't know about you, but the hardest time for me to love is when I've been hurt. And the hardest person for me to love is someone who's hurt me. And I think that Peter understands that if we're going to be known for our love for one another, if that's to be a defining characteristic within the family of God, that we're not just talking about being nice to each other. We're talking about something way more radical than that. We're talking about a love that covers over sin. We're talking about a love that actually pursues reconciliation in the hard times. And we know from the way that the watching world handles conflict and, and disagreement and argument that there's not a ton of reconciliation and restoration going on. And so if there was a community of people who were so committed to each other that in the midst of conflict and hurt and pain, instead of pulling away, they actually pressed in 
and still were committed to one another, if there was a group of people who lived that way, the world would see and go, that is different. That must be what God's like. And in fact, we know from the good news of the gospel that that is exactly what God's like. But we often forget the good news of the gospel and we choose in the pain to stay in a place of unforgiveness. And unforgiveness is like looking at another person and saying, you messed up, you're going to have to pay. Someone's got to pay and you're going to have to pay. You're going to have to cover it. You're going to have to make it right. Unforgiveness is demanding repayment. But forgiveness says, no, I'm actually not going to demand repayment because someone else already paid it. Love is going to cover that. You don't have to cover it. Love is going to cover it. Love covers a multitude of sins. John connects love and forgiveness in 1 John 4, 10 and 11. He says, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Some translations translate that word atoning sacrifice. I'll come back to it. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And then verse 21, and this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So the good news of the gospel says that because God loves you, he sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for your sins. See, the the challenging word of the gospel is that you and I have made decisions to rebel against God. We've sinned against God. And the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. What we earn because of our sin is death. But because God loves us, he sent his son to die in our place on the cross for our sins. And propitiation means a sacrifice that satisfies the payment that needed to be made. Or more specifically, it's a sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of God. So when Jesus died, God poured his wrath out on his son so that his wrath would not be poured out on you. So in the, in the gospel, literally, love has covered a multitude of your sin and mine. Love has covered a multitude of our sins. And and I, I think there's maybe some in the room who you are, you're trying to still cover your own sins. If you haven't yet received the gift of God, which is salvation by grace through faith in Jesus alone, if you haven't received that yet, then you're on your own to cover your sin. And a lot of people are trying. Through good works, giving money, coming to a church gathering, Jesus has already made the payment necessary to cover your sin. We can't cover our own. As believers, we know that we've received that payment by grace. You have been radically loved by God so you can radically love one another. Jesus has paid for all of your sins and all of the sins of every person. So the next time you are sinned against, you can literally say, you know what? That hurts me. I mean, be honest about it. Don't just blow it off. That hurts me. But I know that sin has already been paid for. I don't have to demand payment. Someone already paid for that sin. 
Now here's a couple practical things for you to consider just to walk this out. Two practical suggestions in how you might love one another. Number one, pursue reconciliation with someone you have an issue with. Someone's hurt you, someone's wronged you, and you've maybe stayed in that place of demanding repayment. Well, the good news of the gospel says, and love says, no, love covers a multitude of sins. So the ball's actually in your court to pursue that person and say, hey, we need to talk. And again, that is a radical kind of love that shows the world what God's like. Because God had an issue with us. And what did he do? He entered in. He pursued reconciliation. The second practical thing you might consider is pursue reconciliation with someone who may have an issue with you. You don't have an issue with them, but you either know or suspect they might have an issue with you. I think love says pursue even those relationships. Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. I like to think about the grocery store test with certain relationships in my life. People who I wonder if they have an issue with me. And I think, have I done everything necessary to pursue reconciliation with them so that if I ran into them in the grocery store, I could go up to them with nothing weird in my heart and look them straight in the eye and go, hi, how you doing? Nice to see you. Because if I haven't done that, then I want to go hide in the frozen food section. Right? I see them, I'm like, oh shoot, I, I, I think there's something that's not cleaned up there and I don't really want to do that. So pursue reconciliation with people you have an issue with and pursue reconciliation with someone who may have an issue with you. Just a quick tip on that. Last fall in Tacoma, I preached a sermon on conflict resolution and reconciliation. I put the link to that sermon on my Twitter account this morning so you can find it there. And also when we upload this morning's talk, we'll make sure the link for that sermon is included there as well. That might be helpful for you. So that's one characteristic of God's family. Love one another. Number two, show hospitality to one another. Hospitality in the New Testament is not just having your friends over for a meal. Hospitality in the New Testament is radical. It means Taking someone in, taking a fellow believer in who's traveling or someone who you don't know or someone who's in great need. That's hospitality in the New Testament. On one of the road trips that we were on as a kid, we were headed east from Nebraska to Pennsylvania. We were on the Ohio Turnpike. We started having some car trouble. We got off and accidentally ended up in Michigan, (laughs) which does border Ohio, so we weren't too far off the road. But we ended up in a city park in a little small town. Cars totally broken down. It was a Sunday afternoon. And my, my family and I are just hanging out. We prayed and trying to figure out what to do. And another family comes there to hang out. And they meet us and find out what's going on. Well, that night, we end up staying at their house. They were believers. Found out we were believers. And so here we are in this, in this town. We've never met these people before. And they know we're in trouble. We're in need believers on the road traveling need some hospitality they have us over to their house as even as a kid I remember thinking this is crazy this is radical this is an amazing kind of hospitality and my parents and and that family still swap Christmas cards years later Jeff likes to tell stories about how hospitality was a defining characteristic in the Vanderstelt home that he grew up in And he likes to talk about his parents sitting he and his three brothers down at the dinner table and saying, well, 
there's another person that we met who's really in need and they need a place to stay for a while, would one of you boys be willing to give up your bedroom? And that value was instilled in Jeff uh, very early on. And I think because of that, that became a value for us as a church family in Tacoma. And most of the single people who are part of Soma Tacoma live either together in groups or they live with families. And on multiple occasions, we've had families living together under the same roof at the same time because of need. A few months ago, my wife and I moved to what we like to call the less expensive part of town. One of the reasons we moved was so that we could have a little more space to have people live with us. We designed the basement with that in mind, and we immediately had a single guy uh, join, join our family, move in with us. And it has been great. And I have grumbled. I have complained. And Peter says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And I'll tell you, it's amazing to see what gets revealed in your heart when someone gets in your space. They get in your physical space, and all of a sudden, some stuff starts to come out of your heart. Like, hey, why did he leave that laying around? We've talked about that. Or, hey, this didn't get clean the way we talked about it or the way it's supposed to get clean. Or, hey, where's that person at? Or all kinds of stuff. Communication things and physical things. Lots of temptation to complain. And yet, what I need to remember is that over and over and over again, in the Gospels, the picture that Jesus paints of the new heavens and new earth is, he says over and over, he says, it's like a huge party that dad is throwing. The father's throwing this huge party. And do you know who he invites to the party? The poor, the blind, the lame, the naked, people who have nothing, people who could never repay him. And these people come, and they come through the doorway of the father's house, which is Jesus Christ. He's the door. And they come in, and he says, here's a bountiful meal that I've prepared for you. Come in. In fact, here's some clothes to put on. Come on in. We're going to throw a party. The father is radically hospitable. And guess who the hurting and poor and blind and lame and naked are who've been invited into the Father's home to enjoy the feast? Guess who that is? You and me. It's you and me. See, we have been shown radical hospitality by the Father. He has invited us not just into his space. He's actually come to live in us through the Holy Spirit. You can't get any closer than that. We've been shown radical hospitality so that we can show radical hospitality. I want to give you a couple practical suggestions for how to potentially live this out. First of all, have people from your missional community group over for a meal, a barbecue, a game night, a movie night, a fire pit, or a party a few times a month. I know this church family is beginning to learn what it means to live on mission together in community. That's awesome. I'm so excited. I was so encouraged to hear the missional community story about the Crossroads missional community, to hear how they're beginning to work these things out and they're beginning to see life begin to intersect and overlap. It's awesome. I'm so thankful for what God's doing here. One way to show hospitality to one another is just to begin to invite some people into your home. And maybe they are strangers. Maybe you don't know them yet. 
Invite them into your home, outside of the normal missional community gathering. Here's an easy one for you on this, okay? You've probably heard that in a matter of weeks, the Seahawks are going to kick off, right? Some of you probably know that. There's probably a person or two who knows the number of days until the first Seahawks game. Now, a lot of you are going to watch the game. Probably half of you in the room or more are going to watch the game. Well, don't watch it alone, right? I mean, that's really simple. Don't watch the game alone. Be hospitable to one another by watching the game together. Here's another easy one. How, this one's a little harder, I'll be honest. Halloween's coming up, end of October. Get together with your missional community and throw a big party for the trick-or-treaters. Okay, hospitality, it's hard to touch this one without doing family identity and missionary identity because you want to have your family in, your church family in, but, man, you want to invite people who are not yet part of the family in as well. And so Halloween, for the last several years, we've gotten kind of one of those easy-up things that the street is filled with this morning out at the street fair, and we've done a fire pit, we've done hot dogs, we've done hot chocolate, coffee, and full-size candy bars. Okay? Go to Costco, spend the money, buy full-size candy bars. You will be the most popular place on the block. But, I mean, honestly, isn't that just a little picture of the bountiful feast that the Father has set for us? I mean, it's just a little picture. Hot dogs and hot chocolate and full-size candy bars? I mean, that's nothing compared to the new heavens and new earth that we have coming for us. Secondly, be willing to host other believers who are traveling be willing to host other believers who are traveling. By God's grace, in Tacoma, we have people come from all over the world a few times a year for Soma School. And they don't stay in hotels, they stay in our homes. And we're really not that big of a church, and we're kind of a poor church, but by God's grace, we find enough beds and extra rooms for you know, dozens of people every year to come and stay and live with us. And I'm pretty sure that in the future, this church family will have more and more opportunity to do that so you can even now begin to pray and think about what that might look like. Or maybe think about what it would look like to have, you know, another family or single people move in and live in your space. And some of you, that's like, holy cow, you're talking crazy now. Like, yes, I am. Talking crazy like the Father is crazy for throwing us a huge party at great cost to himself and his son. And yet, that's what he's done. Okay, third characteristic of the family of God. Serve one another. I want to read a couple verses again here. Verse 10, as each has received a gift. Now that isn't like a Christmas gift or a material gift. It's a spiritual gift. It's the Greek word charisma. It means grace gift. When you receive the Holy Spirit of God as a believer, you got a spiritual gift to use to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. A steward is a person who's entrusted with a resource by an owner and then responsible for managing the distribution of that resource. That's a steward. This verse says that when you exercise your spiritual gift to serve the body, to serve one another, you are a steward of God's grace. You've been given a whole heaping ton of God's grace and now you are to steward the distribution of it. See, the primary reason we've been given spiritual gifts is to build up the body, to serve one another. There's a secondary reason, which is to bless and serve the city and the neighborhood that we live in, 
But this passage is focused on that primary reason to serve one another. And I think when we're reluctant to serve, part of what we've forgotten is that we have been crazy recipients of God's grace. Let me give you a picture of kind of the two different realities that can exist with this. If you think about a body of water that only has water coming in but not going out, what does that body of water look like? Especially if a bunch of like ducks and geese have decided to make that body of water their home. It looks nasty. It looks gross. We have one of those in Tacoma. And I know all of you probably think, yeah, Tacoma's probably filled with those, right? (laughs) You don't have any clear water in Tacoma, right? Well, that's not true. But we do have this one particular lake that is very nasty. And it's surrounded by signs that say, don't get in the water, don't swim in the water, don't fish in the water. And honestly, you don't even need the signs because it's so gross, okay? Now compare that with an alpine lake. If you drive up into the mountains, hike up into the mountains, you find some alpine lakes just an hour and a half east of here. And those, those lakes have snow runoff coming into them constantly, but also they've got little streams and tributaries running off of them. Well, alpine lakes are what's so clear you can see, you know, 30, 40, 50 feet all the way to the bottom because there's fresh water coming in and fresh water going out. So listen, when you have a spiritual gift and you have a waterfall of God's grace flowing into your life because of the good news of the gospel and what Jesus has done for you, and then you're not serving, you're like a stagnant pond. But when you've got grace flowing into you from God himself and then you're serving, you're like a pristine alpine lake that's clear and beautiful. And that's what God's designed us to be, stewards of his grace conduits of his grace. And then notice in verse 11, Peter makes it clear that those who are serving are to serve in the power and strength that God provides. I think another obstacle for us in serving is that we attempt to do it in the power of our own strength. I know when I'm weary or when I'm reluctant to serve, it's probably an indicator that I've been living in the power of my own strength instead of in the power of the Holy Spirit, instead of in the power and strength that God provides. The word strength in this passage is the same word used in Ephesians 1.19 to talk about God's power that raised Jesus from the dead. That is the kind of strength we are to serve in, resurrection strength. And when you serve with resurrection strength, you get tired, you get tired. I remember a guy coming to Moody Bible Institute, Crawford Loritz. Some of you maybe heard his name. He came preaching chapel. And I remember him saying, students, it is good to be tired for serving Jesus. It's good to be tired for serving. Jesus was so tired, he fell asleep in a boat and stayed asleep in a storm. He was tired. But he wasn't weary. He wasn't weary. In fact, to the weary, he said, come to me if you're weary and I'll give you rest. It's different to be tired and weary. I'm tired today. I was up late last night throwing a party. But by God's grace, I'm not weary because Jesus is giving me strength. See, when we live in the power of our own strength, we make serving about us and not about other people. It's certainly not about God. When we serve in our own strength, we're actually serving ourselves. We're trying to prove something. We're trying to get something. We're trying to make a name for ourselves. 
But through Jesus Christ, we've been radically served, not so we could serve ourselves, but so that we could serve one another. Here's a couple practical ways that maybe you could begin to serve one another. First of all, find a simple way to serve on Sunday. Find a simple way to serve on Sunday. The Sunday gathering is meant to be like a big family reunion, like a big family celebration every week. And family celebrations are best when everybody pitches in a little bit. That's when family celebrations are best. So don't view the Sunday gathering just as an opportunity to come and receive. View the Sunday gathering as a golden opportunity to come and serve. Okay? Serve the family here. Some specific, simple way on Sunday. One of the brothers I met at the 9 o'clock gathering, he was at the front door greeting people. His wife had their third baby last night. I'm like, whoa, that brother is here serving the family. And he brought their other two kids with them so his wife could be alone with the baby and just chill. And the boys could be here playing with their friends. And he's here at the door greeting people. That's amazing. That's a simple way to serve. And the second practical suggestion and this is on a smaller scale, but just as important, is that I encourage you to find a way to serve in your missional community group. Find a way to serve in your missional community group. You, if you have the Spirit of God, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have a unique gift that has been given to you that that group needs. Maybe it's teaching. Maybe it's serving, maybe it's organization, maybe it's administration, maybe it's communication, maybe it's training the group in hospitality, maybe it's giving. There's all kinds of ways to serve in your missional community. Again, view that as a family that you're a part of, that you're there to serve, not just to receive. Utilize your gift in service to your missional community and allow the grace of God to flow through you. Now, Peter only lists two gifts before he gets to kind of the punchline. It's like he's so excited to get to the end to tell you the outcome of what happens when God's people love one another, show hospitality to one another, and serve one another. He's so excited. He says, in order that, so like here's the outcome, here's the result, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. See, when we love one another, when we serve one another, when we show hospitality to one another, guess what happens? God gets glorified. Now, what does that mean? Okay, the Greek word for glory is doxa. I'm sure you've heard that a time or two in the last six months, right? What is what does it mean to glorify God? It means that God gets more attention. It means that God gets credit. It means that God gets praise. It means that God, God gets amplified. And that is the best thing for all of creation because creation was made to glorify God. So when we do what we were designed to do, it's good for him and it's good for us. So we want God to get glory and Peter says, hey, Doxa Church, Glory Church, your vision 
is that the east side would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord like the waters cover the sea. Habakkuk 2.14. That's your vision. This passage gives you some serious handles in terms of how to actually make that happen. When you love one another, when you show hospitality to one another, when you serve one another in the power and strength that Jesus provides, a watching world and each other, you look and you say, wow, that is what God is like. There's the character qualities of God on display through the people of God. God gets credit. God gets attention. God gets praise. You know, one of the greatest servants that I know is my wife. And I'm not just saying that because she's here. I said it at 9 o'clock too. And when I see... <laughs> you can check the recording. It's, it's legit. When I see my wife serve in the power and strength that God provides, when I see her serve one another and show hospitality to one another, you know, it's, it's contagious. It's beautiful. It's It's powerful. And it shows off the character of Jesus. I mean, sometimes I I watch my wife serving and I think, how on earth is she doing that? I mean, how is this sustainable? Like she can serve tirelessly with a good attitude and with grace for long periods of time. And when she does it, I see Jesus through her life. And you all can probably think of people and think of stories where someone Maybe a, a, someone who had the gift of giving, someone who's very generous, where you see them meeting needs and you see them doing it with joy, you think, man, I see Jesus in that person. You see a gifted leader who's humble and courageous and strong, but leads a people in a way that honors God and leads people to do crazy, amazing things for God's glory. You think, I see Jesus in that person. You see a gifted, passionate teacher like my brother Jeff, and you see him with humility and transparency and honesty, and you think, I see Jesus. When we live and love and serve in the power and strength that God provides, Jesus gets glory. He's on display. And this church can begin to live out the vision and mission that God has called you to here on the east side. Through loving one another, showing hospitality to one another, serving one another. I want to pray for you that the Holy Spirit would give you wisdom to know how to apply this to your lives and the power to walk it out. So Holy Spirit, thank you for my brothers and sisters. I am so thankful for what you've done in this church family. So much mercy, so much grace. Thank you, Father, that you have put them here in this strategic place, at a strategic time. And I thank you for the vision you've given them to be a church that is sent everywhere, that every person in everyday life can bring glory to God by being the church. And now, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would give my brothers and sisters wisdom to know how to apply this and the power to walk it out. I also pray for anyone who has not yet received the full payment of Jesus Christ. It is like a blank check that you have written and signed and slid across the table. And you're waiting for us to receive the payment for our sin. 
Pray, Holy Spirit, that even now, as we prepare to come to the communion table, that you would stir and move and like, have people stand up and talk to someone and say, I want to believe in Jesus. Do that now, Holy Spirit. We're thankful for what you've done. Thankful for being a part of your family. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.